This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WRT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The trial of accused Kenosha gunman Kyle Rittenhouse continued today, finishing the prosecution's five and a half days of testimony. The AP reports that today saw the start of the defense's case, which is asserting that Rittenhouse fired in self-defense. Rittenhouse is charged with killing two men and wounding another last year in Kenosha during a Black Lives Matter protest after the shooting of Jacob Black, a black man, Blake, a black man by a white Kenosha police officer. Rittenhouse claims to have been at the protest to protect private property. If convicted, he could face life in prison. Governor Tony Evers announced today with the Public Service Commission of Wisconsin that $100,000 will be made available to the state broadband expansion grant program. The program looks to aid homes and businesses in Wisconsin in getting new or improved broadband internet services. The funding for these grants was written into the 2021 budget signed by Evers in July of this year and will provide $129 million by 2023. In a press release earlier today, Evers said, quote, I declared 2021 the year of broadband access because the coronavirus pandemic further deepened the digital divide in our state and underscored the need for high-speed, affordable internet in every household and every corner of Wisconsin." The grant is enough to provide over 300,000 homes and businesses with new or upgraded internet. As the COVID-19 pandemic has driven many people inside, Ordering more products online and ordering out for dinner more, the recycling industry is reaping the benefits. The Wisconsin DNR released a a report today detailing recycling programs in the state, and it shows record high values for recyclable materials such as mixed paper, cardboard, and natural plastics such as milk jugs. Wisconsin contributed 750,000 tons of recycled products into regional and national supply chains, this report noted, decreasing energy and landfill usage and generating profit for recycling centers. Fifteen Madison police officers were called to East High School yesterday after several fights broke out between students. The Capital Times reports that eight students had to be treated after the officers used pepper spray on the students to break up the fights. Five of those students were taken to the hospital and are doing okay, said Madison Metropolitan School District spokesperson Tim Lamonts. Officials at the school state that the fights were the result of multiple smaller incidents collapsing into one larger incident. At a press conference yesterday afternoon, MMSD Superintendent Carlton Jenkins said Madison and Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes called for community support in stopping violence. The Dane County Board of Supervisors approved its 2022 county budget last night. This budget includes $200,000 to expand gun violence prevention, $3.25 million to convert a hotel into affordable housing for those experiencing homelessness, and $15,000 in funding for Afghan refugees. Missing from this budget, though, is any additional funding for the jail consolidation project. County Board Supervisor Tim Rockwell was asking for $23 million to upgrade the jail system, which he says is inhumane and unsafe. Meanwhile, budget discussions for the City of Madison's capital and operating budgets are underway right now with additional meetings on Tuesday and Wednesday if needed. The commander of Volk Field Air National Guard Base in Camp Douglas has been relieved of her duties. The National Guard announced the switch in a statement saying the departure of Colonel Leslie Zizda Martin was due to a, quote, lost confidence in her ability to lead. The National Guard says the decision was made following an investigation that revealed issues about climate and alleged misconduct. 
The city of Monona has applied for a grant in order to, pur to purchase a 0.75 acre plot of land along Lake Monona to create a public park. The Wisconsin DNR announced today that it has applied for a 50% matching grant and hopes to develop the site for outdoor recreation and public access. The city hopes to allow parkgoers to enjoy fishing, hiking, and cross-country skiing in this park. And now on to today's top stories. Two Madison Alders warns today that UW Health is launching an anti-union campaign against its nurses. They say UW Health has hired two anti-union consulting agencies after the Madison City Council called on the nonprofit health system to recognize a union organized by its nursing staff. WRT Assistant News Director Nate Buggyhout has the story. Two Madison Common Council Alders sounded the alarms today, warning that UW Health has launched an immoral and aggressive anti-union campaign against nurses. Alders Lindsay Lemmer and Patrick Heck say that they recently learned that UW Health is working with anti-union consultants known for their scare tactics. Those consultants, Axley Bernelson, LLP, a Madison-based law firm, and Chessboard Consulting, a Chicago-based consulting group which claims to help labor relations. The UW Hospitals and Clinic Authority Board, which oversees UW Health, maintains that Act 10 prevents them from recognizing a nurses' union agreement. That's a claim that some labor leaders reject. Nurses say that they are still able to voluntarily recognize the union at any time. Amanda Klinge is a nurse at UW Health. They can absolutely recognize us and our union, and instead they are looking at an anti-union campaign and we have staff members who have been told by security that if they don't leave, which they're not on hospital property when they're told this, that they will be calling the police, which, you know, makes it harder for us to do our jobs when we're at the hospital because we're stressed about all these things. And these resources we would like to see spent on staffing retention and staffing matrices rather than trying to suppress us from having an equal voice. A campaign to form a union has been ongoing since winter of 2019. UW Health nurses had a union until 2014 after Act 10 restricted collective bargaining rights and the nurses' contract expired. In September, the Madison Common Council approved a resolution calling for UW Health to halt anti-union activity and to hold a fair and fast union election. Alder Heck says that UW Health has done just the opposite of that and that they have not communicated any acknowledgement of the council's resolution. We received no communication and I don't believe the, the nurses received any communication about that resolution that Common Council passed. The same resolution explicitly states that according to state attorneys, neither Act 10 nor any other state law stops UW Health from negotiating with nurses. When asked for comment on the proposed resolution in September, UW Health spokesperson wrote in an email to WORT that, quote, UW Health leaders and staff nurses work together directly and collaboratively to meet the needs of our patients while working all state and federal laws related to our workforce. Our robust system of nursing shared governance is part of what makes UW Health a great place to work and a place our patients receive truly remarkable care. 
Alderslemmer and Hack are calling out UW Health to focus on recognizing the union and solving other issues at UW Health. The nurses and the alders state that UW Health has taken several different anti-union measures, including calling the police on nurses handing out literature outside of hospital property. Nurse Cleaning explains. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I'm aware of those two agencies, and so far it has been asking security to take down the flyers that we post in places that we are allowed to post them, such as break rooms, and then telling people when they're not on the property, but like on the sidewalks instead, that they'll call the police. And in fact, they have at times, and the police stand with us the time that they did come out anyway, they did. And then also there's been a few circumstances where people have been pulled into managers' offices to discuss this. Um, and then we also had a social media campaign and one of our colleagues was told by her manager that she needed to take her post down even though it was her own opinions. So mostly things like that. But again, those resources we would like to see put into patient care staffing retention, and our community instead. Alder Heck says that on top of simply recognizing the union, the nurses have many concerns that they simply want addressed. Well, I, I, I think that it's, it's clear that nursing in general is either in crisis or uh, approaching crisis uh, because of uh, nursing shortages, and they want to work together with UW Health Management to address this problem and also um, to address their working conditions, which have um, worsened uh, during the pandemic. From WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Agriculture remains a predominantly white vocation. However, there are efforts to elevate more farmers of color around Wisconsin. One program taking shape in Madison hopes training for small grain production will spark interest. Mike Moen reports from Wisconsin News Connection. Federal data show that the farming industry is older and mostly white, but that's not stopping efforts to remove barriers for people of color to pursue agriculture, and an emerging Wisconsin program could open more pathways by training for small grain production. With the support of the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, Dane County's Neighborhood Food Solutions aims to teach black farmers how to grow and sell grain products such as rye, oats, and rice. NFS Executive Director Robert Pierce says while his nonprofit is tied to a large urban setting, that doesn't mean it can't show aspiring producers how to succeed with commodities beyond fruits and vegetables. Teaching and showing young black farmers that there's money to be made if we do things right. And and the commodities are a way of, of doing this. Neighborhood Food Solutions is known for helping those formerly incarcerated learn about urban agriculture in South Madison. Organizers hope the new program taking shape helps black farmers embrace more intensive production, including equipment operation, while overcoming disparities in owning land. The latest Census of Agriculture says black farmers make up less than 1% of Wisconsin producers. Donnell Richards of the Michael Fields Institute says beyond production, Another component is showing how to have success with customers at local events, such as the South Madison Farmers Market. To provide visibility that, yes, you know, there are people of color who are doing this, and there is actually a lot of support to help people enter this as well. He says that's important because a number of grain markets around Wisconsin are very competitive. And for the ones in South Madison, he says it boosts access to healthier foods for underserved communities. 
Richards adds that in general, farming can be a hard industry to break into if you don't have connections. And there's been a long-standing disconnect between traditional forms of outreach and the black community. It's available, but it's not something that's really been concentrated for people of color to like really understand and get that training. Other partners for the project include the Artisan Grain Collaborative and Meadowlark Organics. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Madison and Dane County Public Health started administering a pediatric COVID-19 vaccine today to children's ages 5 through 11. This range covers almost every school-aged child in Dane County. For more information about the first COVID-19 vaccine for kids, WORT Assistant News Director Nate Wegehout talked with UW-Madison Associate Professor Ajay Sethi. So the COVID-19 vaccine has been available for adults for about a year now, but starting today, children ages 5 to 11 can begin to receive the vaccine as well. This marks a major step forward as schools continue a semester of in-person learning. With me today is Dr. Ajay Sethi, Associate Professor of Population Health Sciences over at UW-Madison, studying infectious diseases such as HIV and AIDS and COVID-19. He's here to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine and how it will affect the children of Dane County. Ajay, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Nate. So just sort of starting off, I want to talk about the difference between the adult vaccine and the children's vaccine there. What are the major uh, differences, sort of in a layman's term, what's the major difference between the two vaccines? Yeah, the major difference is that the vaccine given to children, which is made by Pfizer, uh, is just one-third the dose of that what adults would be getting if they were to get the vaccine. And that's because you don't need as much uh, vaccine to stimulate the immune system of younger children who are 5 to 11 uh, than someone who is older. So usually children, when children get vaccines, usually as they age, they'll end up needing a booster shot. And as we all know, for adults, uh, we all have a booster shot for COVID-19 as well. Do you foresee the need for booster shots for children and the future here? And do you think they'll be uh, more regular than perhaps what adults will be getting there just because of how, how is that going to work? Yeah, right now we don't know. Uh, We'll have to wait over time to see how the immunity is for kids who get uh, the vaccine and to see if it wanes and by how much at any point in time though, whenever you make a recommendation to get a vaccine or a booster, there are researchers and uh, officials at the FDA, the CDC, who will evaluate what are the benefits of giving the vaccines versus the harms. Right now, clearly the benefits outweigh the harms. 
in the future, if we can actually manage this pandemic to the point where COVID is exceptionally rare, there's less of a reason to keep a population vaccinated. That obviously isn't going to be tomorrow. So we'll just have to see uh, what are, what lies in our immediate future. But at some point, we don't, in theory, have to vaccinate for diseases that don't circulate. So that actually kind of leads into another question there. So obviously, we have a lot of kids in in-person learning sort of throughout Dane County right now, a lot of which have quite a few restrictions on them and things like that, uh, mandatory mask mandates and things like that, social distancing. Now that children are going to be able to receive that vaccine, do you think that we might soon see some of those COVID-related protocols sort of relax here in Dane County? Well, kids are definitely part of the chains of transmission that happen in our community and around the country and around the world. Uh, Kids have lungs, too. And so when they're exposed to the virus, they can become infected. And even though getting severe COVID is not as common in children compared to older uh, adults, it still can happen. And they can also become sick. They can become infectious and spread it to others. As we begin to vaccinate more people and more children against COVID, that will reduce the chance that transmission will continue in the community. We haven't reached that threshold yet, but the five to 11 year olds is a large proportion of our population. And the more people, the more children who get vaccinated, the better it will be for everybody. Yeah, I was uh, actually just about to ask, since now that we have, I want to say it's around 70% of Dane County adults have been vaccinated. How important is it that uh, all the children in Dane County or as many as we can get get vaccinated now that they are one of the few groups left out there, the 5 to 11 range there, that have not yet received the vaccine. How important is it for them to get the vaccine? Uh, Very important. If you look at the epidemiology of this virus uh, in the last few months since school started, uh, a lot of the cases are in children because they are unvaccinated generally. Uh, These are children under 12. it's, un- it's sort of unfair to have those children uh, bear the brunt of the pandemic simply because they're not vaccinated. Now that they are eligible to be vaccinated, it's a great opportunity to protect them like others have been uh, since the vaccines have become available. Do you think now that most people in you know, this country as a whole can get vaccinated uh, and in Dane County in general, I think really the only group left is those who are <laughs> you know, medically can't get the vaccine and then children under five. Do you think we could be, do you think we could finally be seeing the possible end of the COVID-19 pandemic? Or do you think we're still a little ways off from that? Um, I mean, so COVID is going to stay with us. Um, We won't be able to eliminate it. And someplace in the world, it's going to be circulating at levels that are worrisome. Uh, And some places in the United States, there will be communities that just haven't achieved uh, enough vaccination of everybody. So it'll be around, but it can be managed. And once when it's managed, I think we'll all definitely feel uh, safer. Uh, And here in Dane County, we have done uh, comparatively well compared to other counties in the U.S., and there's something to be proud of. When you say that it can be managed, do you mean like through the mask mandates and things such as that? No, actually vaccines. So the more people who get vaccinated, 
uh, transmission rates are will come down. Uh, there's a reason why uh, in our part of the state, we do tend to have lower rates of COVID transmission because we have higher vaccination rates overall. We haven't reached that point where we're going to see exceptionally low rates of transmission. We still are classified, you know, on the higher end. Um, but there are other places that have even more transmission than we do because they don't have enough vaccination of the local population. Um, now that children between 5 and 11 are eligible, uh, and if many children do get vaccinated locally, as the adults have and, and anybody between 12 and 18 have, we can expect even lower transmission of this virus uh, in our community, and that's going to help overall uh, in managing the pandemic. So with the talking specifically about the COVID-19 vaccine there, some adults are seeing some mild side effects with the vaccine, usually some mild flu-like symptoms happening a day or two after getting it. Will these manifest just as much in children? And if so, is there any way that we can, uh, do you have any recommendations on how to sort of ease kids' minds into getting the vaccine? Well, kids, kids do get other immunizations, and uh, these vaccines produce side effects that aren't really all that different from the other vaccines we uh, are used to getting and have gotten when we were kids ourselves. Um, so kids can recognize that this is kind of familiar to them. Uh, they've gotten shots before, uh, and they were able to, to manage the side effects, and parents are there to help. Um, I think... The key thing to, for everyone to understand is getting COVID produces symptoms on average uh, for people that's much worse than the side effects for the vaccine. Also, when you experience the side effects, it's good for kids to know that means their immune systems are working and they can be proud that their immune systems are able to react to the vaccine and to be able to produce the protection that they would want to have. Do you happen to know where kids can get the COVID vaccine here in Dane County? Yeah, the Align Energy Center uh, has vaccine clinics. Uh, the lines are long because they just started <laughs> vaccinating. Um, but you can also go to a local pharmacy and get vaccinated there as well. Uh, so you may not get an appointment, uh, you know, as soon as you'd want. But definitely get an appointment as they become available. Uh, there's enough doses for everybody. There's just a lot of demand because the community has been eager uh, to get children between the ages of 5 and 11 vaccinated. And now it's here. And I think people are excited. Yes, I, th I think we're all excited that uh, kids can finally get the vaccine there. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I've been on the line with Ajay Sethi, a professor for population health sciences over at UW-Madison School of Medicine. You can schedule a vaccine appointment online over at publichealthmdc.com forward slash coronavirus. Uh, uh, Ajay, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you, Nate. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WRT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call takes a look at UW-Madison student voter turnout. Wildlife Weekly explains the rules that come with taking care of reptiles and amphibians. And Radio Astronomy gazes into the infinite density of a black hole. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
Did you know that beginning October 24th, 2021, all customers in Wisconsin will need to dial the full 10-digit area code plus telephone number in order to connect their local calls? The change comes after the FCC adopted order FCC 20-100, approving 988 as the three-digit abbreviated dialing code to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline starting July 16th, 2022. The 10-digit dialing requirement will not change your telephone number, nor will it alter pricing, coverage, or other rates or services. Customers will continue to dial 1 plus the area code plus telephone number for all long-distance calls. For more information regarding the 10-digit dialing requirement, visit FCC.gov. Hello? Hi, is Fluffy there? Yeah, hold on a second. Fluffy, it's for you. Hello, Fluffy? The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to get the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, the team looks at student voter turnout. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by campus news writer Allison Stecker to talk about an increase in UW-Madison student voter turnout. So thanks for joining us, Allison. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with some of the numbers. How did the student voter turnout change in 2020? compared to 2016, and who was the group that came out with those numbers? So in 2016, the student voter turnout was 65.4%, but that um, rate increased to 72.8% in 2020. And those numbers were taken from the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education, um, and they kind of did an entire report about um, the 2020 presidential election rise and showing on the numbers and how the student voter turnout increased. Yeah, so how did UW-Madison compare to other college campuses? So we did actually very well. (laughs) So compared to others, our voting rate was actually higher than the 66% rate of all other colleges. So the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education that I talked about before, their overall numbers concluded that 66% of students were voting at a lot of other colleges. They found that UW-Madison's rate was just much higher than a lot of other schools. There's this great campus group that focuses on encouraging voting on campus called Badgers Vote. Can you tell us a little bit about what that group does and how they get the word out? So Badgers Vote is a campus-wide initiative that's a collaboration between the Mortgage Center, the ASM, and just other campus organizations on campus. And they all kind of come together to encourage students to vote and to encourage them to participate in elections because, you know, it's our duties as students to be good citizens of the United States and do our jobs to vote. 
Um, so some things that they did, um, especially last year for the election, because a lot because of the pandemic, they did a lot more stuff online. So on social media, and they did a podcast, which really spoke to the younger generations that were voting, because a lot of us, you know, use our phones and look to our phones to gain information. So a Badger's vote was really primarily focusing on increasing the awareness of voting online. And they found that that was a lot more effective in increasing student voter turnout than just being at like a table. Because I know as a student, like if I was walking around campus, like trying to get to class or like I was on a mission to get somewhere, I'm not going to stop at a table um, and have them talk to me about voting if I was in a rush. But like when I'm walking and I'm on my phone, like I could do more things at once and like see that. So I think that was a really great addition that they did. Yeah. So you talked with Shreya from Badger's Vote. Did she have any ideas on why 2020 especially was a high turnout year? Yeah. So one of the main things she talked about was just like 2016, like the ballot was very competitive. It was very intense. Like it was very extreme. Obviously you had people either really leaning one way or the other way. Um, And so one thing she noted was that she doesn't think that one of the main differences per se were like who was running in the campaign because 2016 was just probably as intense as 2020 was. Um, so she th- she primarily attributed the increase in turnout to the efforts that the university did last year. And I kind of explained it earlier was that Badger's Vote really focused a lot of their efforts to um, advertising online about voting with like the podcast and really making sure they could like speak to the younger voter population. Yeah. So it seems like UW has really taken big steps towards getting people to vote. So they joined the Big Ten Voting Challenge. Can you just explain the importance of that? So the Big Ten Voting Challenge is basically a way to mobilize civic engagement and to kind of get students from all the Big Ten schools to kind of compete with each other, I guess, in a sense, because who doesn't like competition? And you know how students at Big Ten schools are, you know, we've all seen football games. Um, So one of their main, like, important goals that the president stated in their um, letter about the entire challenge was they really focused on the values that they want to teach to the students at their universities and how important it is to engage in like our civic duty. And a quote that I really liked from the letter that I actually put in the article, because I think it really explains why a lot of the universities decided to engage and compete against each other in the challenge Um, was that it says voting in elections gives our students the voice in the democratic process and in the decisions that affect local, state, and national issues. So I think they were really trying to capitalize on the idea that um, as universities, they really try and push their students to be the best educated and informed citizens we can be and to um, really exercise the right that we have here to vote because that's also not really prevalent in a lot of other areas as well so I think they really just wanted to see if engaging in this challenge and seeing just if that would if students would bring like the same intensity to voting that they would like I don't know at a football game that was their main goal with creating this challenge and I think it started in 2018 I think UW-Madison I think I read something on Twitter about how in 2018 they were like second to highest in the competition with voting which is great and so that the fact that we had a even a larger voter turnout in 2020 i can't imagine i couldn't really find data on 
last year's competition, but I can't imagine like we were below second. Yeah. So UW actually has this new policy that you can be excused from class if you're waiting in line to vote or if you're a poll worker. I feel like there's still some other obstacles, though, um, to getting out to vote as a college student on Election Day. I mean, have you observed that kind of thing, um, just like being on campus in the last few years? I'm a sophomore. So last year was my first year on campus. And I think with last, last year, too, I was fortunate enough to be on campus, but I know a lot of other students weren't. And um, especially with how it is with like switching your registration, like I, I'm from New Jersey, so I switched my voter registration so I could vote in Wisconsin because it is a swing state. But um, it's definitely a huge process. And it's I feel like it's kind of a complicated one, especially if you're not in the state that you want to vote in. Um, I, f- I feel like maybe that was a challenge for some students who maybe are registered here, but they were home for the semester and couldn't get here to vote, but they wish they could have because their vote might've mattered more here than it did back at home. So maybe that was one challenge that some people faced. So we're about a year away from the 2022 elections. Um, what did Badger's vote have to say to you about the turnout numbers so far and kind of what they're thinking about for the future? When I talked to Shreya, she didn't like have any specific numbers about what they're going to look like, but she just hoped that the overall increase, <laughs> because obviously who wouldn't want it to? I think one good thing is that that she really capitalized on was how by the next election, Badger's vote will have, you know, existed for another year, which means they would become even more credible to students and they would gain even more experience to help students find trust in the institution and to help them like guide them during the voting process. So even though I don't think we can really figure out, I, I don't know, like discrete numbers of how many people may be voting in the next election, I think there we could put some confidence in the fact that Badger's vote like has more experience on their belt that can really help possibly increase voter turnout even more. Great, thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah, of course, thanks for having me. <laughs> In other campus news, the Ho-Chunk flag was raised on Bascom Hill on Friday morning. It was the first time a different nation's flag flew on Bascom. The event was part of the university's Our Shared Future initiative. An idea repeated throughout the program was moving from ignorance to awareness. Speakers at the ceremony saw the flag raising as one step in the right direction. Chancellor Rebecca Blank said she will inform the next chancellor about the commitment to further collaboration with First Nations people. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcasts on our website. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Lizards, rattlesnakes, box turtles. This week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explains the state regulations and licenses that come with keeping reptiles and amphibians as pets.
Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about some of Wisconsin's reptile and amphibian regulations. And I wanted to do this segment because we've had a lot of people call us about turtles recently, uh, ones that actually have been with folks for a very long period of time, meaning that he had, uh, you know, the person had a turtle that maybe they kept as a pet or uh, one that was even in an interesting situation in, you know, um, in an office building where no one really knew where did those turtles come from originally. Uh, maybe there's a mixture of reptiles where you have a combination of native species and non native species, it can get really confusing at times. And, and I know people call and they're like, what do I do with this animal? Maybe they caught it and uh, it was in a lake and they don't really know, okay, well, how long does it take until um, that animal grows and it now doesn't fit the tank anymore? And oh my gosh, the snapping turtle is actually really, really big and I can't take care of it anymore. It's something that we actually get very commonly in wildlife rehabilitation, either questions from the public or uh, alternatively, the Department of Natural Resources actually relinquishing those animals from their owners. Um, and I say owners, but, you know, wildlife is truly owned by the state. So uh, it really, in that type of situation, it's um, uh, a confiscation, I guess, of an animal if it was held illegally for some reason. So did you know that there are protected species of Wisconsin uh, amphibians, reptiles? Um, we have some endangered species that are the Blanchard's cricket frog, the western slender glass lizard, the eastern massasauga rattlesnake, northern ribbon snake, queen snake, western ribbon snake, and the ornate box turtle. Uh, we've really only seen the ornate box turtle here in our wildlife facility, um, and that was uh, a very interesting case. Uh, and we actually don't really work with that species. Uh, we have some specialists in other areas of Wisconsin that work with them. Uh, and some more of the ones that are considered threatened, um, you know, butler's garter snake and wood turtles. Uh, Blanding's turtles actually came off that list a couple of years ago, but they're a species of concern. Um, and there are ones that definitely cannot be collected in the wild besides those endangered or threatened species like the black rat snake, bull snakes, timber rattlesnakes, and yellow-bellied or blue racers. So those are the ones that you definitely cannot have. Um, and really, you should have a license to collect and possess any sort of reptile and amphibian. So um, you can possess aquatic turtles, technically, or frogs that some people use for bait for fishing. And the types of licenses that you'd want to get from the DNR if you want those as a pet for any reason would be a fishing license first is mm. as an easy mm. one for most people to get. Uh, there's a small game license. You could have a sports license, conservation patron license, a set line license, or a set or bank pole license. Um, so those are the licenses that are usually, um, you know, generally some are only available to residents in Wisconsin. Some you might come from out of state and go fishing, but we really don't recommend uh, taking any animals from one state and then translocating them to another, even in the situation where you have it for a pet. Because um, again, in the future, if you ever end up uh, relinquishing that animal, then what if there's a disease introduction? Hopefully someone's not taking that turtle from Wisconsin and then they go back to, you know, Montana and then they release them in the natural waterways. You really want to be careful so that we're not reintroducing different disease vectors or um, anything else that could be a concern for other wildlife of those same species or similar species. Now, uh, there are uh, certain open seasons even for uh, herp 
herps, we call them herps, um, where uh, you, that's technically the one where you have possession limits and that's when people should be potentially taking them from. Uh, so for example, there's an open season for frogs and that's usually about May 1st through December 31st. Uh, and there's no, no season for bullfrogs because they should not be taken or collected from the wild during any sort of closed season. Um, and for turtles, it's usually about July 15th through the November 30th. And you shouldn't be taking their eggs. That is not something you can take or collect during the closed uh, turtle season unless you have it authorized by the Department of Natural Resources. And I know a lot of people say, oh, I, I want to help protect the turtle eggs by digging them up and then we can help incubate them. Um, preferably, we would only do that in a situation where an adult turtle came in and was gravid, meaning it had eggs, but it for some reason, um, you know, was deceased on admission or if, let's say in the worst case scenario, you know, maybe we had to provide a, a humane euthanasia because the turtle was very fractured from being run over by a car. Uh, we do still have that turtle egg incubation program, um, again, the where we will hatch out babies. Uh, but we should never really uh, take those eggs from the environment and then move them or try, you know, doing a hatching. It's really better if we leave it where they are and then you can look up some information about how to protect those turtle egg eggs in those areas. Now, there are uh, number limits and size limits for certain turtles. So a person can collect or possess up to five individual native herp species that are not protected. So besides the ones that I talked about in the early section here, um, but there's also a few asterisks on that. You can only have three snapping turtles, three softshell turtles statewide. Um, although on your, if you're on the Mississippi River, Apparently, there's a little bit of a higher uh, limit, so you can have uh, five or ten. So ten snapping turtles on the Mississippi River, five for softshell turtles. Um, and then uh, anything that's non-native, there are no possession limits or restrictions for any of those, which is, you know, great. So you're trying to, you know, not have invasive species around in our native areas. Um, and then you can only have up to two eastern milk snakes or two western fox snakes. Um, and then two black rat snakes, bull snakes, or yellow-bellied racers can be possessed. But that's only if it's legally obtained and it's uh, originating from out of state and it's not taken from Wisconsin. So again, that's something you can't take from the wild here of those species. Um, so, uh, and then there's, you know, lots of different other, um, uh, informational things that you should probably gather before you're going to potentially take one as a pet, um, knowing what the species is, what it eats, are you going to give it really good care? And do you have a veterinarian that is a specialist in reptiles? You know, so like UW-Madison, our special species program, those folks work with us all the time for reptiles and amphibian species. Um, and then we also have some general recommendations, um, that you want to make sure that you're not being, uh, harmful to the animals like turtles. Um, they should be taken by hand or net or hook and line, but be careful with those hooks and lines. If you hook a turtle, there is definitely a situation where you might end up uh, injuring the turtle and then it might have to get the hook removed surgically by a wildlife rehabilitator. So definitely look up your uh, information about what you need. You also should really have um, for sale provisions, a class A captive wildlife animal farm license, which would be authorizing you then to sell the native amphibian or reptile. And there's a license fee for that. It's actually $200 and you have to spend $100 a year to renew it. Um, and that's only again for species that are very common and they're not threatened or endangered here. So uh, look up your limits and look up your regulations for the Wisconsin DNR and preferably, you know, don't take a turtle as a pet or an amphibian as a pet if you don't know for sure how to take care of it or knowing what size that animal might get to in the later part of its life. Like a snapping turtle can get very, very big and you want to give it the best life possible, um, which for us is usually in the wild. So appreciate them while they're there. Uh, if you have any questions, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. Thank you.
It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. When it comes to the most massive phenomena found across the universe, black holes are among the heaviest of them all. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Dan Rebarchek shares just what makes a black hole. Welcome to Radio Astronomy, I'm Dan Robarczyk. On today's episode, we will be talking about a recent publication of the largest catalog of gravitational wave detections ever. The idea of gravitational waves has been around for a long time. They were predicted by Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. One of the ingenious insights Einstein had about the nature of the universe was that objects don't just move through space, but they actually interact with space itself. Massive objects actually distort and bend the space around them. A common analogy is that of a bowling ball on a trampoline. A massive object bends the space around it, just as a bowling ball would distort the fabric of the trampoline. And this distortion causes the paths of objects to change. So if you were to roll a marble across the surface of a trampoline, it would normally go straight across. But if you put a bowling ball on the trampoline, the marble will tend to fall in towards the bowling ball, since the bowling ball warps the trampoline surface. So when a massive object bends the space around it, other objects passing by will respond, just as a marble's path across a trampoline would be changed by a bowling ball. Now we don't notice these effects in everyday life because they're so tiny. You and I bend space to such a tiny degree that we could never notice the effects directly. But out in space, there are some really extraordinary objects that bend space so much that we can detect their effects on Earth many, many trillions of miles away. Black holes and neutron stars are the names given to the densest objects in the universe. They're so dense that a single teaspoon of material from them would weigh over a billion tons. And under certain conditions, it's possible to have more than one black hole or neutron star in the same system. When this happens, the black holes or neutron stars will orbit each other. But unlike Earth's orbit around the Sun, which is stable, these orbits can decay. What this means is that the black holes or neutron stars lose energy, and so they fall in closer to each other. This continues to happen until their orbits become so close that they orbit each other with extraordinary speeds and then collide. All the while, they're molding the space around them. These objects are so dense that as they orbit each other, they create ripples in space that propagate outward, like waves in water. Astronomers call these ripples gravitational waves. They travel outward at the speed of light, propagating ripples out into distant space, just as water waves will travel far beyond the point where they're first created. LIGO and Virgo are detectors on Earth specifically built to measure these ripples in space. They do so by measuring minute changes in the separation between objects, caused by a gravitational wave, which, remember, is a distortion of space itself. They do this with a sophisticated set of lasers and mirrors, essentially measuring precisely the time it takes for light to travel a particular distance. Since the speed of light is constant, the distance it travels in a particular time should always be the same. That means that if a gravitational wave passes through and distorts the space separating two mirrors, the time it takes for light to bounce between the mirrors will change 
These changes are extraordinarily small, which is why we don't notice gravitational waves passing by us in everyday life, but they are measurable by LIGO and by Virgo. To that point, a paper this past week announced the discovery of over 30 new gravitational wave detections. This increased the total number of known gra gravitational wave events by over 50%. And based on the properties of these gravitational waves, astronomers determined that a majority of these events were produced by collisions between black holes, although a few were probably produced in the collision of a black hole with a neutron star. Astronomers are now trying to understand how these exotic systems came to be. Did the black holes form from stars in the same system? Or did they form separately and later come together through some kind of gravitational interaction? And how do the inferred properties of these black holes, measured by LIGO and Virgo, compare to theoretical predictions? This new panoply of black hole detections will allow astronomers to study these incredible events, events that shake the fabric of space itself in unprecedented detail, and better understand how wonderful and strange our universe can be. That's all for Radio Astronomy. Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff of The Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wagehout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with Nuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>